it's time to get into the Word again this morning. If you do not have a Bible, you're going to need one to follow along in. And if you don't have one, just go ahead and put your hand up, and one of our ushers will get you a Bible that you can use for the service. And if you are receiving one of those Bibles and you do not have a Bible of your own, please keep the one that you receive. That's our gift to you. What a delight it is to have the Word of God in our hands, something that we can access, a place where we can see Him. Well, welcome back to our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've been looking this summer at the first recorded message that Jesus Christ spoke as he began to carry out his mission amongst his creation. And oh, the rich treasure that we found there. It is such a beautiful place to be. We are disciples of Jesus Christ, Chapel Hill. We've met him, we've seen his power. We've heard things about him. We've seen where he traveled. We've seen what he's capable of in our lives and in the lives of others. We've studied records of events that took place in his life, including people that he knew, miracles that he performed, conflicts he resolved, challenges that he overcame, the impact he had on the world, especially those 12 men that traveled with him. We've seen him in joyful situations and in sorrowful situations. We've seen him murdered, yet rise from the grave. We know who Jesus is. We know what his mission was. We've followed him to many, many places. And we've seen the result of his mission, even in our own personal lives. Yet we can still return to the very beginning, to the first words of his that were written down and find something there that we didn't see before. Here we are in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, a very familiar passage to many of us. And what's happening here? I'm a pastor's son. I grew up with the Bible. I have been taught the Bible my whole life. I've been to two Bible colleges. I've worked in ministry for almost my entire adult life, between overseas missionary work and now the priceless ministry of the church right here. But just a few weeks ago, I finally learned what it is, what it means to be meek. I absolutely love this about God and His Word. I will never stop learning. I will never master understanding who God is and what He's saying to me. My whole life will be this journey that includes God opening my eyes regularly to see the truth, to see His light, to see the world, to see His plans for me. Because I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. I can tell you right now that my life will never be boring. It will never be boring. Christ always has something for me to learn, some way in which I can grow something for me to do, some mission for me to accomplish, some dark place where I can shine as light, some life that needs my influence, some seeker that needs to be shown the way, some young disciple that needs to be guided. The depths of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ are unfathomable. I will always have purpose. I will always have direction, always have a challenge always be in the vicinity of a need, always be faced with something that I need to understand better or just understand at all. Basically, my life rocks because I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And my task right now is to keep God's Word before you and to do your homework for you and equip you for what God is calling you to daily since you 
also are disciples of Jesus Christ. Walking this road with you is fun. So let's once again take a seat on the grass at the feet of Jesus and listen to what it is he has to say to us this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Let's back up and read the first eight verses together again and see where today's verse, today's beatitude, fits into all of this. Jesus is unveiling his values and priorities here as he addresses those who would follow him for the next few years and take the baton from him and hand it off to the world. So, Matthew 5, 1, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, last Sunday we dug into verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We talked about God's promise to be merciful to those who are merciful themselves. He's been incredibly merciful to us through the gift of His Son, Jesus, who came to do something about our unhappy state. God has been very, very merciful to us. So here, through the words of His Son, He's calling us to be merciful as well. And then he goes that extra mile and promises to give us even more mercy than he already has as a result of us being merciful to others. We gave thanks last week for some of those in our midst who are faithfully being merciful to others. And at the end of the message, I made a statement that I want to circle back to as we move forward to the next beatitude this morning. And that statement was this. In every true act of mercy, someone pays the price. In every true act of mercy, someone pays the price. This happens every day in all kinds of circumstances. I see my wife being merciful to our sons, and she pays the price through the giving of her time and energy and privacy. She pays the price by foregoing adult conversation for hours and hours on end. She pays the price by getting up in the middle of the night to deal with illness and nightmares and numerous other weird situations. This cost is weighed every time we consider an opportunity at the church to do a service project that demonstrates mercy, or basically anything that comes face-to-face with the demands of our schedules. Something has to give. We have to give something up. And today's Beatitude is going to address that tension. Last week I mentioned by name some of the people in our church who are serving and extending mercy in different ways from VBS to living and serving abroad, um, there are a few that I held back for this week because their lives and ministries demonstrate this statement so clearly right now. Uh, David and Natalie Maximovich are on my heart these days. I've been talking to David about some of the struggles that they're facing and attempting to offer him some encouragement and guidance. Um, let me read you some words from a recent email from them. Remember that they have already had to leave the country that they plan to be in long term. Things have been hard for David and Natalie. This is what David writes. We have been slowly improving our knowledge of two different languages. We're much further with one than the other. And have been trying to maintain relationships both with new people we meet here and with the people we left in the other country we were in. 
though we are grateful to be in this country, we still feel called to return to the other one as soon as God gives us the opportunity. We actually hope to return in a couple of days, but two weeks ago, Natalie suffered some very serious health issues. She woke up early the other morning with severe abdominal pain, and at first we thought it was appendicitis. But after going to a few different local clinics, found out that she had an ectopic pregnancy. That's an issue of positioning for the baby. The doctors told us that this problem has an extremely high mortality rate in this country, and they told us they were going to medically evacuate us to a nearby Middle Eastern country with better health care. We only had a couple of hours to get ready for the flight, so some of our friends, who were already watching our kids at our apartment, started gathering some of our belongings and making plans to watch the kids until our relatives could come to watch them. The medical flight only had room for me and Natalie. They brought the kids to see us at the clinic just after the doctor told us that the pregnancy had ruptured and Natalie was rapidly bleeding internally. The doctor said that the baby had died and Natalie would not survive the flight, so we would have to chance having the surgery done locally. We rushed to another hospital, and Natalie was quickly whisked away into surgery. The surgery only took a couple hours, but I wasn't allowed to see her until the next morning. By God's grace, Natalie is recovering well. She stayed in the hospital for recovery for about a week and has now been home about a week. She's getting her strength back, but is still tired and sore. We are also both still dealing with the loss of our baby, but God has been giving us incredible peace and grace in all of this. For now, we will be staying put a little longer until we get medically cleared by our doctor for travel, and then we will decide our next step. David and Natalie are paying the price. They are passionate about extending mercy to the people they've been called to reach. But that extension of mercy is coming at a high price. Please remember the maximologies in your prayers. Betsy Wallen is another from our church who's serving abroad right now in Uganda. We sent her out back at the beginning of summer. Betsy works in an orphanage in Uganda. It's an orphanage for children with disabilities. Um, Just let that sink in for a minute. A college student from here who loves Jesus follows God's leading to Africa to love on some of the most forgotten of God's creation. Betsy has had her own health struggles. She has some significant diet restrictions. But she went willingly and packed a case of Cliff Bars to take with her. Recently, Uganda made the international news again because of some tribal fighting around a village that Betsy was scheduled to visit with a team of teachers and therapists. About 100 people died in that fighting. There was a lot of tension in that area, and Betsy and the others she works with were being advised by the U.S. Embassy and the organization that they work with about their safety and their options. Betsy expressed gratitude that they did not have to be evacuated. They didn't need to leave. But the tension continues and is all around that area. And in spite of the risk, Betsy is passionately and faithfully living out mercy to the kids that she works with, no matter what that cost might be. In her most recent blog post, Betsy expresses very clearly how she's been wrestling with a question in her life, and this encourages me so much. She wrote that the question she's faced and come to terms with is this. Whose life is it? Whose life is it? Does the life she lives belong to her or to God? And she states with resounding confidence and clarity that her life belongs to God, and she'll be whatever he wants her to be. 
talked about that kind of surrender this morning. This next beatitude speaks directly to that. Keep Betsy in your prayers as well, please. She doesn't have a, a lot of time left in Uganda, and then I'll let her and the others who have gone uh, come and share with you all that God has been doing in them and what this experience has meant for them. But I would like to take a moment now just to, to lift them up in prayer. So will you pray with me, please? Father, you've told us many times that being a follower of Christ does come with a cost. That as followers of Christ, we're targets of your enemy, Satan. And that things are going to come at us. You've shown us that mercy, that extending mercy comes with a cost. For some of us, it's such a minor thing. It's, a, it's an inconvenience in our schedule. For others, it, it costs a lot. For David and Natalie, it costs having to pick up and leave everything they know here and take their family to a foreign country and learn a new language and culture and try to grow into the ministry that you have for them there. And Father, I just want to lift them up to you right now. I ask for your peace and your comfort to fall on them in a big way today. As they grieve the loss of this baby, as they struggle through Natalie's health issues, God, bring healing and restoration. Give them their strength back. Give them hope and encouragement. Father, I lift up Betsy to you as well. I ask that you would continue to keep her safe and out of harm's way. That you would continue to use her, that your love would just flow out of her when she's got these kids in her arms. And she's just loving on them and letting them know that they're worth something. That you love them. Father, bless her in the ministry that she's involved in. But for every one of us, as we're faced with opportunities every single day, to extend mercy. Help us to be able to count the cost as nothing compared to the rewards that awaits us if we will just demonstrate love and mercy the way that you have through your Son. God, we want to follow you into that. Make us merciful people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so how do we make the transition now from blessed are the merciful to blessed are the pure in heart. I think it's actually pretty easy. So here we go. Jesus spoke into a spiritual environment that was heavily influenced by the Pharisees. Israel was not in good shape politically or economically. They were under the oppression of the Roman government. But worse than that was their spiritual condition. Now, if you ask the Pharisee how they were doing spiritually, they wouldn't see a problem. But it was there, and it was serious. The Pharisees had before them the scriptures in which God had laid out the standard for his people. God's laws were many. You see them in the Old Testament. The Pharisees had poured a lot of energy into interpreting those laws to the point where their interpretation of the law became more important to them than the law itself or even God himself. The Pharisees had worked their way into the center of their religion. What they said was the highest level of authority in the Jewish religious system. So over the centuries, the religious leaders realized that no one could observe the entire law. And so they attempted to narrow it down to a few laws, just a few laws, that they should follow perfectly. Well, when that didn't work, the observance of the law came down to finding one law that you could follow perfectly. 
And so we see evidence of this. Later in Matthew, there's an account of a lawyer who asked Jesus about which law, which commandment was the greatest, which single law was the greatest. Now, when Jesus spoke the Beatitudes, he was not directly addressing the Pharisees, but you can see how his words must have been such a breath of fresh air when he spoke them to his disciples. The message of Jesus was not the message that they, or anyone else for that matter, were accustomed to hearing at that time. Jesus speaks in the Beatitudes of our dependence on God for our place in his kingdom. He speaks of a mourning that should be there over our sin rather than pride over how well we're keeping God's laws. He speaks of controlling our God-given power and surrendering it to God rather than using it to make ourselves the center of our spirituality. He speaks of the desire we ought to have to see things be the way God wants them to be. All of these things are internal spiritual issues. And then the first time Jesus says anything about a man's behavior, anything that might tie back to our observance of the law, he speaks of mercy. And in their quest to find that one essential law that you should carry out perfectly, you can imagine that being merciful was not high on the Pharisees' list. But Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I think all of us can see this tension that's there. And then Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know about you, but I want to see God. I do see God in ever-increasing clarity, but I want to see Him more clearly and know Him more intimately. More than his comfort, more than his satisfaction, even more than his mercy, I want to see him. I want to see God. And here's Jesus telling me and the disciples who gathered near him that we can see his Father. And that blessing comes through purity of heart. Now the Greek word katharos means pure. And here again the translation is actually very easy for us. It means pure, clean, sincere, upright, void of evil. Our hearts are to be pure if we want to see God. Our challenge in understanding this morning is not found in understanding the word pure. You know what it means. It's very accurate. This challenge is once again, this challenge is once again found in the execution, not in the understanding. And what a great motivation we have before us to draw us into executing this with passion. We get to see God. Now, the word that we need to focus on in our study this morning is the word heart. Heart. And you can spot right away with it up on the screen the impact that this Greek word has had on our English language. From cardia comes cardiac, related to our hearts. But, of course, this statement by Jesus is not a health lesson. Jesus didn't come to add a no-fast-food law to the Scriptures so that we could keep our physical hearts pure. Um, If so, I would find, like the Pharisees did, that it is impossible to keep the whole law. Jesus was talking about the significance and function of the heart as it relates to our lives. The heart is the seat and center of circulation, and therefore the seat and center of human life. When the word heart is used in the Bible in reference to us, we need to understand what's being said and what's not being said. When we hear the word heart, we're often led to this idea, this picture of emotion. The heart has to do with feelings and desires and passions.
with me. We use phrases like wear your heart on your sleeve to describe someone who, who doesn't hide their emotions. We talk about broken hearts referring to our emotions. A lot of country songs talk about broken hearts. Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is represented by hearts. Hearts are used in a romantic sense. Hearts represent love to us. But when the Bible uses the term heart, the word has a much broader meaning. I get a picture in my head that looks like this. Um, This is the old NASA command center. On space expeditions, which sadly are a thing of the past now, this is where all the important decisions were made. This was the place of highest authority. This is where problems are solved. This is where control over those expeditions is kept. Now, when the Bible speaks of the heart, I think of Command Central. Command Central. Yes, the heart is the center of our emotions, but it is also the center of our thoughts and our decisions. You'll hear me refer to us as humans as having a spirit, soul, and body. When I say soul, I'm talking about what the Bible also refers to as the heart. But I'm more likely to use the word soul because of the emotional images that the word heart creates in us. We were created as spirits with souls and bodies. Our souls are made up of our mind, will, and emotions. That's our hearts. Our hearts are the command central for the thoughts we have, the decisions we make, and the emotions that we experience. Out of our hearts flow all kinds of things, and the Bible backs that up. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll look at the words of Jesus when he says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's going to expand on this beatitude in Matthew 6 by challenging what's really valuable to us. The thing that has the greatest value to us is going to take control of our command central. And our thoughts, decisions, and emotions are going to be based on whatever that treasure is. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus is going to speak about our words and how out of the overflow of our hearts, our words will come. Once again, he'll challenge the condition of our hearts. In Matthew 15, 8, Jesus speaks directly to the Pharisees about the heart. He refers to them as people whose lips may be saying some of the right things, but whose hearts are far from him. Then in Matthew 22, 37, when Jesus answered that lawyer's question about the greatest commandment, he refers to the heart again as he tells the man that loving God with all our hearts is essential. Again, he's talking about the command central of our thoughts, decisions, and emotions. And I hope this comes as a bit of a relief to those of you who are not primarily emotionally driven. You may be a little more rational and realistic than some of us. Um, Maybe you don't wear your emotions on your sleeve. Maybe you don't have any emotions at all. Well, Christ is addressing a bigger picture here of the human makeup than we may have thought. The Pharisees were preaching behavior, behavior, behavior. But then Jesus shows up, and he's preaching motive, motive, motive. The first four Beatitudes spoke to the inner person. Blessed are the merciful, spoke to the external aspect of our lives. And Jesus' words about mercy presented a sharp contrast to words about law. So here Jesus speaks to the motive, the heart, behind what we do. 
So the word that keeps coming to my mind as I look at this beatitude is why. Why? We've been talking about the heart here, the mind, emotions, and will. To get down to applying this principle of purity of heart, I need to constantly be asking myself the question, why? And I think this is a good exercise for all of us. We are not passive in the journey to become pure in heart. Now, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we have been cleansed. That's not what I'm talking about. We've been purified positionally. But the process of purification goes on throughout our lives, and we do have a role in it. We can't attain ourselves what Christ attained for us, but we can affect the process of us becoming pure in heart. We can ask why. Why? The heart is the command central for our thoughts. I have to ask myself why I have the thoughts that I have. And we all catch ourselves having thoughts that are not from God, don't we? We have lustful thoughts, vengeful thoughts, selfish thoughts, judgmental thoughts, sometimes just plain disturbing thoughts. So why do we have those thoughts? They come from somewhere. They come from our hearts. So why are these unrighteous thoughts making their way into our minds? Jesus addresses the thoughts we have. He helps us see that there's a source to those thoughts that we don't want to make comfortable in our minds. He directs us back to command central to our hearts to see what influences we've allowed to have power in our hearts. And he directs us to root out any impure thing that lives in our hearts. We can ask ourselves why we make the decisions we do. What is my motive behind the decisions I make daily? Is it Christ that guides my decisions or is it me? Maybe I'm making some decisions solely based on the external influences in my life. Maybe I'm making decisions with only my well-being in mind. Why am I planning the days the way I am? Why am I choosing to spend time with these people? Why am I investing my resources in one place versus another? Why am I at this church? Why do I work here? What is the motive behind the decisions that I make? We can ask ourselves why we experience the emotions that have such an impact on us. Why am I angry about this? Why did that make me sad? Why am I laughing at that? Why does this activity make me so happy? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so afraid of that person? Why am I so upset that this didn't turn out the way that I hoped it would? Sometimes it really seems like our emotions are totally out of control. Sometimes it seems like our responses to these emotions are taking us down some roads that we really don't want to travel. What is the source of those emotions? Now, I have a tendency to look at the large picture. Um, Some people get bogged down in the details. I get disconnected from the details sometimes by dwelling on the larger picture, and that immobilizes me. So I have to make this personal, and I want to bring you along in this process. So here are some more specific things that we need to look at regarding the level of purity that we're experiencing in our hearts. I have to ask myself questions about my mind. When I'm not engaged in some specific task or activity, where does my mind go? And if I don't like what I see when I ask that question, then why is my mind going there? Is this an issue of me putting the wrong things in my mind? Is this an issue of me having the wrong desires in my heart? 
Why am I spending so much time on things that have nothing to do with God or His will for me? How can I invite God to lead me back to my heart and find out what the source of those thoughts really is? Uh, David, as we see in the Psalms, invited God to search him and show him if there was anything unworthy in him. Do we have the courage to do that? Do I have the courage to do that? What, where, why is your mind going to where it goes when you're not on task? Let me encourage you to have that conversation with your father. Let him show you some things. Look now at your will. Let's think about the decisions that we've made, even in this past week. And I'm going to invite the parents to join me in this. All right, parents, why did we do that for our kids this week? Why did we set their schedule the way we did? Was our motivation this week to do things for them so that we wouldn't feel like we let them down in some way? And I'm not questioning what we did with them or for them, but why did we do that? Why did we decide to have them spend their time that way? What was the driving force behind that decision? This is so clearly applied to parenting. There's a reason, a motive behind the decisions that we make related to our kids. Do you know what that motive is for you? Am I at the center of the decisions that I make that impact my kids' lives? Or is it God's will for them that's at the center? Of course, this applies to marriage as well. Why are we living out the the calling of marriage the way that we are? Why did we spend our time the way we did last week? Why are we planning for our future this way as a couple? What's the motivation behind our retirement plan? Is it us or is it God? Put any aspect of your life into this scenario and ask yourself the same question Betsy Wallen is asking herself. Whose life is it anyways? Is it mine? so that I'll make my decisions based on what I want? Or is it God's life, one that He has given me to steward? Why am I making the decisions that I'm making about my career, about my home, about my investments, about my time? Where are these decisions coming from? From a command center that's under God's authority or from something else? Husbands and wives, Why are you experiencing those emotions? Wives, why does it make you so mad when he does that? Husbands, why does it make you so angry when she says that to you? Where is that insecurity coming from that that seems to take over so many situations? Why are you secretly happy when your spouse fails in some way? Why are we only happy when our spouses live up to our expectations? Why do you feel so lonely when you're living with your husband or wife or your family 24-7? Again, my approach here is not to judge our thoughts, decisions, and emotions. Jesus is talking about the purity of the source of those thoughts, decisions, and emotions. And he's promising to bless us as that source, that heart, becomes more and more pure. We will see God as all that clouds those thoughts, decisions, and emotions is done away with, and command central is surrendered to the one who ought to have control in the first place. This morning I'm challenging us to ask ourselves, 
why do we have the thoughts that we do? Why do we make the decisions that we make? Why are we experiencing the, emotion, the emotions that impact us so strongly? So let me sum things up. Blessed are those who realize that they can't save themselves, so they depend entirely on God and His mercy and grace. Blessed are those who are brave enough to face their own sin and be affected by how costly it is. Blessed are those who have their own power under control and surrender it to God. Blessed are those who, in the midst of life's demands, have as their strongest desire a hunger and thirst for things to be the way they ought to be. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is Jesus speaking. And once again, we can barely see the bar that Jesus set for us because it's so high. Like the Pharisees, I might have to scale this back a bit and find maybe two or three of these that I can master. Or let's be real here, I'll just pick one and see how well I can do it at one. Because no one can live up to this standard. But this is Jesus speaking. And he seems to think we can do this. Well, this isn't all of what Jesus said. So as I felt myself shrinking under the weight of all this over the past week, I decided to go and listen to some of the other things that Jesus said. And here's what he said to me. I hope this is encouraging to you like it has been to me. Because I was starting to get discouraged again. Thinking about how far I fall short of the Beatitudes. This would be so much easier to just study than follow, wouldn't it? This is also Jesus speaking. And he says, come to me. those blessings that Jesus is offering. I want to be that person that he's describing in the Beatitudes. I want my heart, my command central to be pure. I want my motives to be pure so that my thoughts and decisions and emotions all serve the purpose of bringing glory to God. I want all that. And Jesus seems to think that I can have that. But the view from my little mind is overwhelming. That's an awful lot to expect of me. And I feel that weight coming down on me. Until Jesus reminds me that he never intended for me to walk this journey alone. He never intended for me to live under the pressure to perform the way I think he says I'm to perform. He's always intended for me and for you to walk so closely with him that we share 
the load of living out the life that he's created for us to live. He intends for us to rest as we increase our dependence on him. He intends for us to be comforted by him. He intends for us to surrender our power to him where he can use it and we can rest. He intends for us to have access to all the resources of heaven. He intends for us to be satisfied. He intends for us to receive mercy. He intends for us to have the blessing of seeing his Father, our Father. So if you're feeling the weight of having to live up to the standard that's set in the Beatitudes, then go to Jesus and take on his inviting us to find rest in our pursuit of becoming the people that we ought to be. What a generous, loving shepherd we have. Remember as we get deep down into exploring what Jesus said, that he had a lot to say. And he said it all out of a deep, unconditional love for you and me. His grace will allow us to make mistakes along the way. His strength will carry us. His love will never, ever let us down. He is faithful. I'm going to invite the ushers and the worship team to come now as we close the service. Let's pray while they come. to stand face-to-face with the Beatitudes and, and listen to what your Son said and think about how that applies to our lives and this great intent that you have for us, this design that you have for our lives. It's humbling. We look at it and we can see that there's no possible way that on our own we can live up to that standard. And you never intended us to. You don't expect us to do this on our own. And I just, I want to thank you for that this morning. That you are so faithful. Your grace is so huge. Your love is so limitless that you're right there walking with us through this. And not only walking beside us, but we share this load together. As you come and dwell in us and live these things out through us. takes us right back to the first beatitude, God, where you said that, that we, we can't do anything on our own to save ourselves. We've got to look at this and go, okay, we are like beggars at the gate, desperate, penniless, broke, helpless. But only until we come to you and you come in and, and we join ourselves to you, we share your yoke, we share the burden of your son that in this process of becoming these people that we know we ought to be, that we can see described in the Beatitudes, you have invited us to rest. How gracious you are, how faithful you are, and how humble we are to have at our disposal your power, your love, your mercy, your grace, your resources, your spirit living in Thank you for being so patient with us. Thank you for being so gracious with us. 
for forgiving us and giving us second chances over and over again. We praise you because you are faithful. And your mercy endures forever, and your grace to us knows no bounds. Thank you for being such a loving shepherd and father. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus.